I just want to thank Ray and uh, and the worship team for playing Sovereign Return. I know you did that at my request. So some of you are like, what in the world was that? That's Hanley and Aaron Lee messing around uh, about six or seven years ago. See, in youth ministry, I, I've been out of youth ministry for quite a while now. But back then, it was the, it was the, you know, I don't know, 2006, 2007, somewhere along that. Then we, we had to find a way for, for youth to learn theology. And what we saw was, was we looked at scripture and what are the three major themes that you see in the Old and the New Testament. And, and we saw three. In the Old Testament, it's monotheism. You worship Yahweh. There's election. Israel is God's chosen people. That's why you need to be set apart and obey these laws. And you have these promises that are given to you. And eschatology, right? They looked forward to the first coming of the Messiah. All of the prophets were pointing towards this Messiah. So we saw three things. Monotheism, Yahweh's worship Yahweh. Election for Israel as God's people. And third, eschatology. You go into the New Testament, those are the same three parallels. It's it's no longer just Yahweh. It's Yahweh is the Trinity, right? So it's Father, Son, Holy Spirit, but the gospel of Jesus Christ alone. Then there's election. The church, ecclesia, are the called out ones, called out to be God's kingdom. And then there's eschatology, his second coming. And so we said for young people, they're not going to remember all of our expository sermons, but they'll listen to music. So we wrote like four songs and, and we focus on those things, and some of you put up with our nonsense, right? It's the gospel, sovereign grace, election, sovereign, uh, what was that, sovereign something, right? Sovereign king, sovereign lord, and the sovereign king was the kingdom. And today, uh, I had Ray play that old song, Sovereign Return, was to teach young people eschatology. Because if they listen to the music over and over again, they're going to remember it a lot more than just uh, remembering our sermons. Okay, so... That's what that is, and, and I, I requested that because that's what we're going to talk about today, the sovereign return of Christ. The title of today's sermon is The Final Defeat of the Serpent. If you've been with us, we've been going through this Advent series talking about the serpent crusher, going back to Genesis 3.15, the fall of man, where God promised that through the woman, redemption would come, that one day a man would be born. Right, one day a son of Eve would be born that would defeat Satan and crush his head. Symbolically, obviously, because Satan's not really a serpent. He's a fallen angel. Okay? And, and the serpent crusher is really the son of God, Jesus Christ. Now we know at the cross, Jesus defeated the serpent. And what happened there was the power of Satan to deceive the elect was removed. All those who God had chosen to be saved would no longer, for the rest of all of our time here on earth, be deceived. In fact, anyone who actually turns to Jesus Christ and wants Jesus, you can have him. Part of God's elect, because we don't know who God's elect are. And so the power of Satan to deceive God's chosen people was removed. But, for some mysterious and crazy reason, God allows Satan to roam around this world still. So since Jesus resurrected from the dead, Satan's still alive. He's still roaming around. You look at the face of evil everywhere. You see that most of the world is still under deception. And so what we have in Scripture, in Revelation 20, is this glorious future hope of this picture that the final defeat of the serpent is coming. In fact, it's revealed to the Apostle John the very words. The dragon, that's symbolic. Satan's not really a dragon, otherwise he wouldn't deceive anyone. Okay? But Satan, the dragon, it says, 
the serpent of old, the ancient serpent. And so, if you have God's word, will you take and turn with me to Revelation chapter 20? Revelation chapter 20. We're going to have some fun today. Uh, those of you who have, uh, again, I apologize if you sat under my teaching for too long. You know, but for those of you who have been with us, you know that whenever it's Christmas, whenever it's Easter, uh, whenever I get to preach, whenever it's a special occasion, rather than making it easy, I want to preach some of the hardest passages for you. Because I believe that it's important for you to understand how to interpret these hard passages. So today we're going to have some fun. Okay, ready to dance? Let's go. Okay, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year to God's elect. All right. So um, there you go. So here's an outline of Revelation 17 to 20. A lot of people are scared of Revelation 20 because they make too big of a deal of the millennium. You know, they're like, well, what is this thousand years? Is it literal? Is it symbolic? You know what? At the end of the day, uh, what's important is the defeat of Satan. That's the main point. And so to help you understand this, on the slide I put the flow uh, of, of the last, you know, the, the, the few chapters leading up to Revelation 20. Revelation 17 talks about this Babylon-like kingdom led by two satanic beasts. And so in the Old Testament, Babylon is the enemy of God. In the New Testament, Rome takes the form of this new type of Babylon. Babylon's always persecuting God's people, taking God's people captive. Babylon goes back to Babel, the anti-kingdom of God. So in Revelation, you have Babylon symbolizing this anti-satanic kingdom. It's led by two satanic beasts. And once again, beasts don't defeat anyone. Right? Beasts don't deceive anyone, I mean. You know, unless you're Marshawn Lynch, you're not going to make anyone miss, right? So these satanic beasts are not literal beasts. It's symbolic. And we're not preaching Revelation 17, but Revelation 18, it talks about this glorious fall of this Babylon-like kingdom. Then you get to Revelation 19, and it's the sovereign return of Christ and the defeat of the two satanic beasts. But with the two beasts in the lake of fire, there's the dragon left. What about Satan? And it's in that context that you go to Revelation 20. And Revelation 20 talks about the defeat of Satan. And Satan is defeated in several stages. But Satan is referred to as the dragon serpent. So you begin to see these symbols. right? This serpent in the garden raises his evil head. And now he's described in Revelation as a dragon. So today we're going to see what's going to happen to Satan when Jesus returns. Point number one. Point number one, Satan will be bound extensively. We believe this is a future event because evil and Satan's deception is clearly everywhere right now. If you look with me at Revelation 20, verses 1 to 3. In Revelation 20, verses 1 to 3, what I want you to see is, is language that describes a future extensive binding of Satan. It says, then I saw, so this is a vision, and I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he sees the dragon, and there's Genesis 3.15 right there, the ancient serpent. So if you're John's original audience, you know that this is talking about the devil because you know Genesis 3.15. right? You've looked through Scripture. He sees the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. So the millennial kingdom is part of Satan's defeat. And threw him into the pit, shut it, sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. 
until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Now, if you ask me, and most of you can kind of see that this is not describing right now. right? Because Satan is clearly deceiving people. He's clearly active. So John sees all these symbols that describe this, this binding that's, that's extensive. A key, bottomless pit, great chain, Satan's thrown into the pit. It's shut. It's sealed. I mean, just think of the word bottomless. I love Red Robin because of one reason, bottomless fries. Why else would I pay 7 to $10 for a hamburger when we have In-N-Out? Right? Because I want the bottomless fries. But you know what bottomless means? Bottomless means it's bottomless. So get this picture. There's a pit. There's no bottom. So this dragon is just constantly falling into this endless dark abyss. You don't even have a bottom to build a ladder. You can't even try to jump. Because there's no bottom. I think whether you take that symbolic or literally, it's communicating something. He's in a bottomless pit. And he can't even get out and deceive people. In fact, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8-9 to reinforces the fact that the binding of Satan is a future event. Because Peter says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. You can't do that if you're falling into a bottomless pit, seeking someone to devour. And then verse 9 of 1 Peter 5 says, resist him. You don't have to resist him if he's falling into a bottomless pit. right? But it says, resist him, firming your faith, knowing the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So Revelation 20 describes a future event. Now here's a question. Why then, see it says here that he's going to be bound for a thousand years, then he's released again to deceive the nations. Then the end comes, right? Then you have the new heavens and new earth. So, so for, for those of you who are Bible students, it's kind of confusing because Revelation 19, you have the second coming of Christ. Christ comes, he defeats the enemies, the enemies fall down, the saints will gather around, right? That's the kingdom, okay, on earth. So you have, you have, you have Satan's two beasts. Whether you believe this is a literal antichrist or a federation of kings, end time kings, or you have the false prophet, the two beasts raise up war against Christ. Christ comes back, he defeats them. At the end of 19, they're thrown into the lake of fire. Revelation 20, Jesus, throw, uh, Satan is thrown into the pit. Jesus establishes 1,000 years of reign on earth. And then at the end of the 1,000 years, Satan's released for a little while, deceives the nations once again. Then he's defeated and thrown into the lake of fire at the end of chapter 20, then then you have the new heavens and new earth. So my question is, why don't we just go straight to the new heavens and new earth? Why doesn't Jesus just come back one time it's done? No millennial kingdom, no kingdom on earth. Why do you need that, Jesus? Just take us all into the new heavens and new earth. Here's the reason why. And this ties us back to the serpent crusher. Because in Genesis 1, 28, God gave Adam a mandate. And that mandate was to exercise dominion and to subdue the earth and extend, extend God's kingdom throughout all of creation. That was God's original creation plan. It was for Adam and Eve to extend the kingdom across the face of the earth, this earth. But here comes this sneaky serpent. He tempts Eve. It's not her fault because, remember, her husband did not correct her. Adam falls too. As a result, the fall of man happens. God's kingdom plan is ruined, but for a moment. 
Because one day a serpent crusher would come. Adam failed to exercise dominion and rule. Christ comes. He crushes the head of the serpent, puts all things under subjection, fulfilling God's earthly mandate. And part of that defeat of Satan is almost God saying, Satan, you might have messed things up, but you have not destroyed my plan. A new Adam, a true and better Adam will come. He will not only defeat sin on the cross, he will not only reverse death through his resurrection, he will reign on earth for a thousand years. He's going to do everything and put everything under subjection. He's going to do everything that Adam should have done. You know where you see this? First Corinthians. Right? First Corinthians 15 talks about the resurrection. So First Corinthians 15, verses 22 to 27. Let me just read this to you because it's so clear. It's so clear how First Corinthians 15 is talking about Revelation 20. Okay, so here it is. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, right? Revelation 20, it talks about the saints coming to life and reigning with Christ for a thousand years. Okay, so so all shall be made alive, each in his own order. Christ, the first fruit, so Christ, he dies, he raises again. Then at his coming, you see the context, Paul's eschatology, right? He says, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after what? After destroying every rule and every authority and power. First he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. That's the kingdom. Then the last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. So that's why Christ comes back. He reigns on earth for a thousand years. If you don't want to take that literally, that's fine too. It can be symbolic of a long period of a time, but we know that it's literal in future. It is a literal future period of time where he will reign on earth after the kingdom. He will hand the kingdom over to God. That's what First Corinthians is saying. Saying, God the Father, you wanted your kingdom. You're going to have your kingdom. Adam fell, but Jesus Christ will not fail. Christ will reign on earth and he will hand the kingdom over to God. Now, that's what I want you to see today. I want you to see today that the millennial kingdom is part of Satan's defeat. And it's part of God's, the fulfillment of God's kingdom plan. Point number two. Okay, we're going to get into our text now of, of, of back into Revelation. Satan did not destroy God's plan. God's still going to have his kingdom. Right? And so point number two is God's kingdom plan will be restored when Satan is put under. Genesis 1.28, put all things under subjection. Adam, you did not crush the head of the serpent in the garden. You did not exercise dominion over the animals and every creeping thing. But Christ will. And so the arrival of the kingdom is foreshadowed in Daniel chapter 7. And in Daniel chapter 7, what Daniel saw, <clears throat> it's expanded upon via vision in Revelation 20. Right. So Daniel chapter 7, I just want you to see the parallels. Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. Daniel says, as I look, thrones were placed. Right, verse 10, and courts, the court sat in judgment. Verse 22, judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. I haven't seen this happen yet, right? So Daniel saw in his context the Ancient of Days taking his place on his throne. And Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, Daniel sees not just one throne. He doesn't just see the throne of Christ, but he sees plural thrones where it describes a multitude of servants. They're there, and the court sat in judgment. That's what it says in Daniel chapter 7. But here in Revelation 20, verse 4, 
John sees not just the throne of Christ, he sees thrones, plural, and seated upon them were those whom authority to judge was committed. You see the parallel. Courts of judgment. Who's going to be judging? Those sitting on thrones. Then Daniel chapter 7, verse 22. The Son of Man is given dominion. Right? That's Daniel chapter 7. The Son of Man is a reference to Jesus Christ. It literally says this in the text. Judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Revelation 24, John sees these saints as they come to life and reign with Christ for a thousand years, possessing the kingdom. That's what we mean in the song. Kingdom restored. The saints in one accord. Join the angels as they act. Technically, Aaron and I want to make it edit because nowhere in Revelation do angels sing. We just want to be accurate. So we want to say, join the angels as they say, holy is the Lord. Lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. David Jeremiah makes this beautiful theological mark about this. He says, we sing. Angels were never redeemed. The, the angels who weren't fallen, they say. Uh, you know, but it, it's kind of cool. It's like we sing because there's a song of redemption that we can sing. And, and the book of Hebrews talks about how we have this experience that's so great that, that angels don't have. As great as they are, they don't get to taste redemption. Right? So we will join and sing, and, and the angels will say, right, holy is the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. Now look at Revelation 24. Now let's, let's look at our text. It says, those sitting on these thrones include the souls of those who have been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. But how I understand this is this is not just talking about the martyrs. This is not only talking about those who were beheaded or who died for Christ. Unless you take that literally, just only the people who were beheaded, that's it. I think because John says, it says here in the text that John sees those who had not worshipped the beast or its image or had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. Now, if you and I die today and Christ came back sometime afterwards, then in our lifetime, if we've never received the mark of the beast, I'll explain that in a minute, then this includes us. So what we believe is that every single believer who has died and gone to be with Christ, when Jesus returns, we will all receive our resurrected bodies and we will come to come into life. And the fact that John gets to see these saints who are beheaded just as a vindication of the victory of defeat over Satan. That, that what John sees, these people sitting on the thrones are they include the martyrs, but it's all the dead in Christ. It's not exclusive to the martyrs. It includes the martyrs, those who died with Christ. But it's all the dead in Christ. How do we know this? Because in Revelation chapter 2, remember, Scripture answers Scripture. By the power of cross-referencing, Revelation chapter 2, verse 26, is, and, and this is talking to churches that weren't obedient. Remember this? Remember Pastor Albert preached uh, uh, talking about the message to the seven churches? Revelation chapter 2, verse 26. To the church of Thyatira, the one who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. Talking about the millennial reign of Christ, right? Revelation 3, verse 21. This is to the lukewarm church. Right? The church in Laodicea. To the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my thrones. You look in Revelation 21 and 22, the new heavens and new earth, there's only one throne. So this is talking about the millennial 
reign of Christ. Okay, that, that the saints will share with him. Now, what's the mark of the beast? What's the mark of the beast? Now, for those of you who are Bible students, I hope that's all of you. Remember that Revelation's only hard if you haven't read the Old Testament. And that's what's challenging for us because it's not Revelation that's hard. It's the Old Testament that's hard sometimes to understand. Because we're in a different era. We're in a different age. We're a different epoch, right? But one of the things you have to remember is that when John's original audience received Revelation, they had to have understood God's word. It's not going to be something that they didn't understand. Which means they, they understood these things. Just like when they saw serpent, they knew that was the devil because they had the Bible. Right? That's the, that's what makes it hard for us is that we don't have their context. Okay? But what does it mean the mark of the beast on one's forehead and hands? John was a Jewish Christian. As a Jewish Christian, he understood the Old Testament. And so this is how John's original audience would have understood this. They would not have interpreted it as some crazy microchip that you insert on your forehead or your hand because then they wouldn't. Are you saying that the original audience didn't get the text right? Because microchips weren't invented. So that's not what it's talking about. The closest thing you can you can say is maybe the Roman emperors forced, just like they branded slaves, maybe they brand your forehead, they tattoo your forehead, tattoo here. Um, and if you don't have that, Revelation 13, you can't buy or sell. Is that really what's going on? Because when you look at history, as bad as the Roman emperors were, they would brand their slaves wherever, but there is no Roman emperor who told people, I want you to put a branding on your forehead. So how would they have understood this? They would have looked to the Old Testament. right? And in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter, um, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 8. What does it say? Deuteronomy uh, chapter 6. I think I jumped ahead. Sorry. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 8. It says, it's talking about the context of the law. It's talking about God's law. And it says, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Now, some of you just go to Westwood. Okay. You go, or, or New York. You go to uh, Orthodox Jews. They apply this literally by wearing these things called phylacteries. Right? And, and these are small containers, small boxes containing parchments with verses of God's law. And they would wear just a, a piece of, you know, God's law would be written, put in these boxes. They'd put it on their foreheads and they'd put it on one they would wear here. What does that symbolize? It's, it's what Deuteronomy says. It's what the law says. Keep the word of God. Meditate on day and night. Don't let it leave your mind. So it's almost like having God's word control your thinking. What does the hand represent? You kill with the hand, you do work with your hand, you feed with your hand, right? It represents your actions. So this is talking about complete control. And so if you're deceived by the beast of Satan, or if you're deceived by Satan, then Satan controls your thinking. You can't see that Jesus Christ is the truth or the Lord, right? So Satan's controlling your thinking and Satan's controlling your actions. But for the Jews in the Old Testament, it was to have the law of the Lord on here, on your forehead, so that God's word controls your thinking. You're no longer deceived. God's word controls your action. Now in Revelation 13, John sees two beasts that symbolize two powerful workers of Satan that deceive the world in the final three and a half years. I believe that one of these beasts is the man of lawlessness described in Thessalonians, and that's why I believe in a 
and a future Antichrist figure. But that Antichrist figure could be leading a federation of kings. Daniel chapter 7 and 9, that's for another sermon, maybe next Christmas. Okay, But I, I tell you, only Christmas I give you this, this hard stuff. You know, people are, people are convinced that when, when newcomers and, and non-Christians come, they want to hear watered-down stuff. That's not true. <laughs> they come because they want to hear the Word of God. Right, and so, so th- those are the times when, when we'll, we'll give it to you hard, okay? Um, but, but basically, what happens is in Revelation 13, the church is being persecuted. It, it literally is it, is the Word of God says says this beast is permitted to make war on the saints for three and a half years, and somehow the the church is shielded away during this three and a half years on earth. And so, so then it says that if you don't have this mark of the beast. You will not be able to buy or sell. It'll control you. I believe what what's happening here is the saying that that Satan, through this end time beast, will deceive people, just like he's deceiving them today. But it'll be utter deception, and that's why in Revelation twenty it says he's sealed. He can no longer deceive the nations. He will deceive their mind, deceive their thinking. That's the idea: is that they won't be saved because their hearts will be controlled by Satan. That's the mark of the beast. And so who's going to be sitting on the throne? Anybody who hasn't taken the mark of the beast. So are you a genuine born-again believer in Jesus Christ? If that's you, you are not deceived. Satan's not controlling you here, and ultimately he's not controlling your actions. You will reign with Christ for a thousand years or a literal future period of time marked by a thousand years. Okay, And that's, that's what I believe. It just... You look at the whole Bible, it gives you interpretation. Right now, now let's look at, let, let, let's, let's continue on in our text. And you notice in Revelation 20, remember 1 Corinthians 15, it talks about resurrection. Revelation 20 talks about two resurrections. Number one, there's the first resurrection. It equals believers who reign with Christ for a thousand years. That's in verse 4 and verse 5b. That's the first resurrection. At the beginning of this period of time, Marked by a thousand years, all the saints in Christ who have died will rise and reign with Christ. We will receive our resurrected bodies, will reign for a thousand years. What's the second resurrection? All unbelievers will be raised unto judgment at the end of the one thousand years. And that's what it describes in the first part of, describes in the first part of verse five. How do we know that this is talking about two resurrections? Once again, you go back to the Old Testament. Daniel chapter 12, verse two. It speaks of the end times. You just look at Daniel chapter 12. You look at the subheading that the English Bible translators give you. It's talking about the end times. In Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, it says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, resurrection body, then eternal life in the new heavens and new earth, some to shame and everlasting contempt, which means at some point all will be raised, both believers and unbelievers, the regenerate and unregenerate, some unto the kingdom, some unto eternal judgment. And so, clearly, two resurrections. How do we know that the first resurrection refers back to verse 4? Right. So it's a little confusing. It's a little confusing because the order of the English, or the order of how John writes, can be a little confusing. Let me uh, just read this to you. Okay, Look in... Verse 4, I'm just going to start in the beginning. It says, Revelation 24, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them 
were those whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast. Meaning you haven't worshipped the thought of Satan or the, or the, or the antichrist of Satan. And its image had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. You haven't be, been deceived. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. That's confusing. Because when he says this is the first resurrection, that's pointing back to the group in verse 4. I know it's a little confusing, but verse 6 gives you the clarity. Because verse 6, look at verse 6. This is blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. That's talking about the group in verse 4. right? Over such, the second death has no power. What's the second death? It's the first death. We all die physically. The second death, spiritual death. And those who have Christ, who reign with him, don't die that second death. We don't die the spiritual death. We have spiritual life. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So what's confusing becomes very clear. Whatever this first resurrection is, it's talking about the group in verse 4 that will be the priest of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. It's the same group. That group in verse 4 is the same group in verse 6. That's the first resurrection. And that clarifies it for us. right? So you can read it this way. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection over such the second death, spiritual death, has no power. But they will be priests of God and Christ and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So when Jesus returns, point number one, Satan will be bound extensively. Point number two, God's kingdom plan will be restored. Point number three, Satan will be burned eternally. I know I just needed the BE, okay, but it's literally lake of fire. All right, Satan will be burned eternally. First he will be bound extensively. Then you know, God will come back, restore his kingdom. Then Satan will be burned eternally. That's what it says in the text. Look at verse 7. Verse 7. It says, After the thousand year period, the serpent, Satan, will be released from his prison temporarily. Where in verse 8, he will be permitted to deceive the nations once again. The people gathered against Christ, they are in vast numbers. This is a divine mystery. Where do these bad guys come from? I'll explain that in a minute. Okay? The text says their number is like the sand of the sea. That's a lot of people under deception of Satan once he's released again. Now here's the question. The classic question is, Revelation 19, you should ask this question. Revelation 19, Jesus comes back. He kicks everybody's butt, right? So who's left? Nobody but the saints that were shielded away. So you have in Revelation 13, the Antichrist, this beast, and the false prophet are making war on the church for three and a half years before Jesus' return. Je- Jesus somehow shields away the church, so you have human life. Jesus comes back. He destroys the enemies of God. That's the entire world that's raised up against Christ. He, he throws the false prophet and the Antichrist, the two beasts, into the lake of fire. So who's left? The church. The church. There is the church that's dead in Christ. They will receive resurrected bodies, will reign with Christ for a thousand years. You have the church coming in alive. Human beings alive. They're believers. But a thousand years is a long time. They're going to have children. 
And this is the power of the sovereign grace of God. This is amazing. This is why election is important. This is why salvation is not by works. This is why salvation is not something that we can just say, hey, I figured it out myself. You have all these children now of these believers who are in the millennium as human beings. And sure, a lot of them will be saved. But a lot of them will come to church kind of thing because their parents told them to. Jesus is sitting on his throne. Satan's bound in the pit. He cannot deceive them. So they worship Jesus, but inside there's rebellion. Inside they don't truly worship Jesus Christ. How else do you explain this? That as soon as Satan is released, so many of them are deceived. It's, it's, it's vast. Like count the sand in the sea. That tells you about the power of deception. You see this theme of deception in Revelation 20. These people are no longer worshiping Satan because, because he's put into a pit. He can't deceive them. Once he's released, it goes to the depravity of the human heart. Right? And that is sad. That is the sad reality. And nowhere in Scripture does it explain this this idea of where these bad guys will come from. But that is one explanation that because of my own sinful heart and human heart, I, I can I could understand. I can get it. I can get it how I, and some of you know me, can grow up in the church and not be saved until Jesus really, really rescued me towards the end of my high school. I can understand how I can come to church every week, go through the motions, but not really believe. I can understand how that struggle, even as a believer, how I struggle with temptation and sin. So how much more for those who are truly not regenerate and not part of God's elect? Oh my goodness, we talk about the grace of God even in the millennial kingdom. And if you want to take the millennial kingdom as right now, well, then direct application, the grace of God right now. The grace of God right now over God's elect. But at the end of the day, we believe this is future based on the context that this is after Jesus returns. Now, look what happens. There's not even a battle. I want you to see something funny. God doesn't fight Satan. Because if God fights anyone, put in the equation, there's no fight. God versus XYZ, there's not even a fight. God shows up, gone. God decrees it, gone. So, do you notice something hilarious? That in chapter 20, it's an angel that comes down and binds Satan. God's like, Satan, Lucifer, you serpent, if I fight you, it's not fair, and I'm a fair God. So, one of my angels is going to fight you because you're an angel. You're a fallen angel. Angel on angel, right? MMA. No, I'm just kidding. It's angel on angel. And so, it's an angel that does And look what happens. So, there's the, there's the camp of the saints at, at the end of Revelation uh, chapter, or in, in Revelation chapter 20, verse 7 to 10, the bad guys gather. Right, Verse 8 says they march up and surround the camp of the saints. And before they can even attack, fire came down from heaven. I mean, what is this? A fairy tale? No, it's truth. Fire came down from heaven. I don't know what that's going to look like, but it looks like it might be fire from heaven. Consumed them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur. And so it's like when you say lake of fire and sulfur, I'm like, this is not something that Dante made up. Okay, in the infernal. Um, even if you take this symbolically, how symbolic do you want to take it? It's going to hurt. Okay. 
And so lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. So the reason I believe in false prophet, because it says here a false prophet. The, belief, the reason I believe in the Antichrist, because the beast, I believe in the man of lawlessness, written, laid out in Thessalonians, were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And that's that point. Satan will be burned eternally. All right, so that is a sad reality. Satan's thrown into hell. The, the Antichrist and the beast are already there. That is, that is crazy. And what are Gog and Magog? Right, well, I think my daughter, she's like a, a newborn, making these sounds right now. Uh, Gog, Magog. <laughs> um, hilarious because I know, thank you for the laugh. I, because, um, you know, right now, uh, she, she can only see black and white, really, right? And she gives attention. So my mother-in-law uh, made these pictures, and she looks at it. So the other, so yesterday, I opened my Reformation study Bible, and she looked at it. Anyway, I had it open to Ephesians 1, 4 to 6. Uh, but <laughs> Gog and Magog are, are biblical names for the nations that are rebellious against God. God, right? So Gog and Magog, and I feel like, like a pog, some of you who are older, you know, put a slammer on it, right? But uh, represents the nations that are hostile to the people of God. And and again, the answers to Revelation, you cannot be afraid. It's in the Old Testament, okay? In Ezekiel 38, verse 1, you know who Gog is? Gog is the prince of Magog. <laughs> I, am, I am Gog, the prince of Magog. Are you serious? I would laugh at him. No, he would kill me, okay? But but Gog is the prince of Magog. Sounds like someone from Star Wars, right? And, and, and here comes from, it says he comes from the north during the final days to bring warfare upon God's people. And so, so that's Ezekiel 28 verse 1. Now in Revelation 20, Gog and Magog are symbols. Again, the Jewish Christians receiving John's revelation and the Gentile Christians who would have had this explained to them would understand, oh yeah, that's what Ezekiel was talking about. And they symbolize all these nations that will gather from the four corners of the earth to make war on Christ and his saints. That's all that is. Right? And so, so that's what you see here in Revelation 20. Now here's the big idea of this morning's message. The big idea is this. When Christ returns to establish his reign, Satan will be bound extensively. Then he will be burned eternally. That's just taking it right out of the text. When Christ returns, he will crush the serpent finally and fully. I mean, he's already crushed him. But Revelation 20 says the serpent of old will be, will be bound extensively. Then he will be burned eternally. That's nice, but where does this passage show up in our everyday lives? How does this passage apply to us? Right, here's how it applies. I already alluded, alluded to this. Almost turned British for a moment, you know? Almost alluded to this, something, whatever. Satan's greatest weapon is deception. Deception. That's his greatest weapon, and that's why it is the Word of God is our most powerful weapon. You know, I always talk about this, that we are a church that's intergenerational and multicultural. Do you realize that in the last 10 years, God has sustained our church through so many crazy challenges? And what's the one thing that unites all of us? It doesn't matter if you're 60, 70, or if you're 20, or you're 18, or you're 12. Right? Do you realize how uncool our church is? That we just trust the Word of God? Because if you just look at 
you know, occasionally we'll have a topical sermon series here. We'll do this here. That's all good. But do you understand how many years did we spend in Matthew? Then I was looking back and I said, well, you know, since 2006, we preached through Ephesians, Philippians, how many times? We preached through 1 Peter, 2 Peter, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians. I don't know if you guys remember this. We preached through most of the epistles. We just preached through Judges. We're going to preach through Mark starting next week. That's all we're doing. Preaching through God's Word. I mean, that's not all we do. But do you understand that a steady diet of God's Word might not be like, wow, that's so cool. But over time, it's like junk food, which I like, versus healthy food. You know, you eat junk food, you remember it. You're like, oh, I had that great junk food meal. I remember that when we went on vacation and we ate, we ate chili fries with pastrami on it and, and there was dirty oysters popping out of it and something crazy like that will mess up your stomach. You'll remember it. Okay. But you ask yourself, you're like, did your parents feed you that? No. Steady diet of rice or beans or whatever it is, you know, that you eat and, and the boring food that you eat. And then the next thing you know, you're 18 years old and you're alive. And if I ask you, tell me every meal, you're like, I don't know, but I'm alive and I'm healthy. That's God's word for God's people. You're not going to remember most of our sermons. Okay? But after 10 years, 20 years, you're like, I don't even know what you guys preached on. But I, I have grown in Christ. Because we've fed on the, the truth of God's word. But if we come in with every trend and chase this, chase that, and here's this, and let's turn off the lights and go crazy. Let's put some disco balls. Let's put smoke. I mean, some of you guys, I remember that, but you, you are not going to grow spiritually. See, that's the thing. Satan wants to deceive. And, you know, the crazy thing about Satan is the way he deceives is he doesn't tell you, ooh, look, I'm a dragon, I'm a monster. No one's going to listen to him. You're going to run to church and say, Pastor, help me. He shows up and he deceives you. And, and he says, look, false religion. Look, you're still religious. It's just not Jesus. He says, look, chase after the things of this world and you don't even know that I'm controlling you. Materialism, lust, pornography pride. All of those things is the way that Satan deceives us. That's his strongest move. You understand that Satan can't create a single thing? He is not creative. You understand that the Satan's not God. He can't create. He can only mess up God's creation. It's like a little boy, right? This is like, oh God, you made this? Boom, let me kick your sandcastle down. That, that's all he can do. He can't even build the sandcastle because that's exactly... Do you understand that he's the wisest? Genesis 3 says he's the most cunning thing, creature, the serpent. And what's the wisest thing he can do is say, hey, God didn't really say that. He can't even come up with his own religion. He can only twist God's religion. He can only, hey, did God really say that? Did God really say that? Maybe God's word is not true. So his greatest weapon is deception and twisting the truth of God. And so if you don't know God's word, you're going you're gonna to fall into that deception. So Revelation 20 gives us a glimpse of what the world will be like when Satan is bound and unable to deceive the world. But as soon as he's released, he's able to once again deceive the human soul, which means our greatest problem is not the environment. I'm not talking about like ozone layer stuff. I'm talking about your surroundings, your, your family background. I mean, those things are important. But, but it's not like, hey, God, remove all the bad guys and then I'll worship you. God, make my life easier, and then I'll worship you. God, if you just kill all terrorism, then life will be good, and we'll worship you. Look, Jesus does this in the millennium. He wipes out everyone that's bad, 
Everyone's worshiping him, at least outwardly. Satan's completely bound. Satan's gone. But as soon as the serpent is released, it goes back to the depravity of the heart, total depravity of the heart. So what's our greatest problem? It's not external, it's internal. What is the greatest problem? It's the heart. And what's the one person who can defeat that problem? It's Jesus Christ. And what's his instrument? Through the power of the Holy Spirit, it's his word. Because word reveals truth. And so starting next week, we're going to continue preaching God's word as a vibrant church driven by a passion for God's word, a church that's biblical. And we're going to go forward and we're going to exposit Mark. We'll take breaks here and there. Uh, but this will take us into 2019. Okay, so just sit tight. Uh, we're going to go through Mark. And we'll, again, we'll have breaks to preach on the building, to preach on Mother's Day, Father's Day, missions. But at the heart of our ministry is back to the sovereign word of God. Let me pray for us. Father, we just thank you for 2017. And we see the faithfulness to you that you've been faithful to us, Lord. We're grateful. Help us to be faithful to your word. Help us to be a church that is unashamed to preach your word, even the difficult stuff. Help us not to chase the trends of this world or even the course of pop evangelicalism, but help us to stay sound in our doctrine, in our character, in our pure love for you and for people. Will you equip the saints in this room with your word for the work of the ministry so that we can be part of building up and advancing your kingdom as we await the kingdom that is to come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.